Hear the word of the Lord from John 20, 19 to 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I'm, I'm, my name is Scott Gasco. I don't necessarily need to introduce myself. Ben's already done that. Uh, I am the pastor at Harvest City in Iowa City, and uh, it's really a joy to be with y'all. Like, uh, this is like the red carpet treatment, honestly. I had somebody read the Bible for me today. Uh, I didn't have to, like, uh, pour the communion into the cup and cut the bread up and get it ready in the morning. I mean, like, that's the life of an, a church planner initially. I feel like there's so many things that somebody else is doing here uh, that for me to just get to step in and preach is such a joy. Uh, it feels like the red carpet. So uh, I come to you uh, today, uh, not just as a, a mouth, right, that preaches a sermon, but as a dad and as a husband. So I brought my wife, Emily, with me. Uh, and uh, we have our three kiddos here, Madeline, uh, Kate, and Jacoby. And actually last night I texted Ben. I don't know how late it was at night, probably too late. But um, And I was like, Ben, uh, just a heads up, we're headed into the emergency room uh, because Kobe had this big, like, growth between behind his ear. And anyway, turned out it was like a really bad swelling of a bug bite, but one of our friends it's a doctor said we should go in and get it checked out at the yard because it could have been mast something itis I don't know you guys if you're doctors you know what that means but I had no clue it was a big word and I was pretty scared so we went to the emergency room anyway all that to say it is really good to just be here with y'all this morning not have to worry about those things Kobe's in uh, Sacred City Kids uh, and it's rolling so uh, I brought a little uh, picture that I wanted to share with y'all to get started this morning it's a five generation picture uh, from my family so I'm actually that baby right there okay that's my dad rocking those, I don't know, it looks like he's wearing shades, right? Uh, but um, that's my dad on the left. It's my grandpa, Wayne, uh, on the right. And uh, in the middle, we'll be talking about him a lot today, is my great-grandpa, Vincent. Well, my great-grandpa, Vincent, I remember as like the patriarch of the Gasco family, okay? When I uh, stepped into the Gasco family growing up, we would do all the big holidays at him and my great-grandma Josephine's home. Uh, he lived to be 92. My grandma lived to be over 100. And so uh, they like were still gardening together, you know, in their 90s. So we would still have big family holidays at their home. And uh, I remember so distinctly each each holiday we would get together you know you have your big meal and then that like you know feeling kicks in and everybody gets tired and people take a little bit of nap well in the Gasco family that nap would be short-lived because we're kind of intense and so we kind of are competitive and so we would then regather regroup and we'd head to the local gymnasium Okay, somebody would have a key to get into like a high school gym somewhere wherever the family gathering was and we were gonna play some ball that afternoon. So you're gonna work off whatever that food was that you ate during that big meal. And I grew up in this family, like just wanting to be like the men in the family, specifically wanting to be like my dad, wanting to be like my grandpa. I never got to see my great grandpa Vincent play any ball, right? The dude was like 80 by the time I was that. But like uh, every, every holiday, it would be like D1 or probably more like, 
like D3 or a little bit lower than that sports happened in that gym because all of the men in the Gasco family played like college sports somewhere. Somebody played tight end D3. Another guy played basketball D3. My dad played two college sports, okay? He played football and baseball in college. So it was really intense, really competitive, and I wanted to be like these men. Well, that's in my story. Uh, that's where uh, it's not all pretty, right? Because uh, my dad had this specific story uh, playing baseball in high school. He played Legion baseball. Uh, he caught for Mike Boddicker, if you know that name. He was like, uh, you know, the American League Championship Series MVP for the Orioles at one point in time. Won 20 games multiple times in the big leagues. But y'all probably don't care about that. I just do because I really like baseball, you know. But anyway, my dad caught for this guy that's really good, and they uh, they had a good run and. And so they're playing in the American League or American or World, the Legion uh, World Series or whatever, the game to get into the Legion World Series. And uh, my dad had this game-winning home run off of Paul Molitor, who now is in the Hall of Fame. And so I grew up hearing about Paul Molitor and how my dad had owned him one day. My dad <laughs> hit a home run off of Paul Molitor. And so my dad was like the high school baseball coach. And, and so this was just a big part of the mantra in our family right? It was this story, and I always wanted a story like my dad had a story. So much so that I would, I would basically do anything to get that. And so I had basically sold my life into trying to get some story in sports, even though, like, you look at me now, you know, like, um, there's nothing super great about this physical specimen, you know? When I was a senior in high school, I weighed like 135 pounds dripping wet, okay? Nothing really great was going to come out of that in, in terms of college sports. But I put all of my life into it. So much so that my senior year, I was playing some baseball. Imagine that. And uh, I played for West Delaware. And uh, we played in the sub-state. Uh, well, it's actually, this is the game before sub-state. District finals against Cedar Rapids Xavier. You know, like, the, like probably down here, y'all are used to Assumption being that person that like just rains their parade on all the other small 3A schools in the area, right? For us, it was Xavier coming into town. They recruited from Cedar Rapids, right? And so we're playing against them. Well, that day, uh, as one-to-one in the bottom of the last inning, and uh, they intentionally walked the guy in front of me to make first and second base. And uh, like I say by God's grace, but really it was just, you know, like it was baseball, right? Uh, I got the game-winning hit, and I was on TV, you know, KCRG, all those stuff, whatever, ABC. And uh, so I had my story because the hit was off of a dude named Ryan Sweeney who had his run in the, in the majors. He didn't make it to the Hall of Fame like Paul Mollett or anything like that. But finally, I had my story. And you'd be like, wow, man, I bet that felt so great. Well, yeah, for like about six days, you know, because uh, I remember a week later uh, after the, we'd lost in the state championship game, literally crying in my lucky charms. Like I, would, I was trying to eat breakfast and my tears were just dripping in my lucky charms because I had given all that I had up to that point in my life to have that story, and I wasn't ever going to play organized baseball again. Like, that's all I wanted was to be like my dad. But, like, for me, the story, it felt like ended there, and I didn't know where to go with my story. And so that was a huge wake-up call in my freshman year. We don't need to talk about it too much, but, man, it was a downward spiral, okay? I tried to find my story in every aspect of a college freshman year, and you can imagine where that took me. We don't need to get into the details there. It was kind of crazy, but the wake-up call for me was my great-grandpa Vincent. The week before finals, my freshman year, spring semester, my great-grandpa Vincent passed away. He had a heart attack uh, out in the garden, literally gardening with my great-grandma Josephine. 
They'd been married for 67 years. He had been the patriarch of my family. He had been this picture of a man, a man faithful to God, faithful to his wife, faithful to his family. And when I thought about my freshman year and I looked at his life and we reflected on his life, I just saw this didn't match up. And I was like wrought with grief. And for the first time in my life, I remember connecting with my dad over something that wasn't sports. My dad and I grieved together. For whatever reason, I was the one that he leaned on. He was the one that I leaned on. Even though we didn't have a super close relationship, that was a huge connection point for us. And, and because of that, then I received my dad's invitation to go to Promise Keepers Conference. Uh, later that summer, at the beginning of that fall, I heard the gospel. I remember clearly the verse of the weekend, kind of theme verse of the weekend was Galatians 2.20. It says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And that was it, right? Like that was life changing. And, and I share this picture because on that day, I know for me, that was the day that, that God did a work in my heart of regeneration and I received the Holy Spirit. And like, he took me on this path to where I'm at today. And, and I would say, I don't know, my dad would probably say as a day he rededicated his life to Christ, but I'd never seen the dude read his Bible before. And all of a sudden it was getting crazy. He was reading his Bible. We were praying together and he was growing spiritually. And my grandpa, previous to that, my dad and my grandpa and, and my grandpa and I didn't have that great of a relationship because growing up, my grandpa uh, was a, a wife beater and alcoholic. He was on his third wife by the time I got into the family. Uh, but on that day, uh, I remember the dude preaching, said, turn to the person next to you and ask if you want to um, put your faith in Jesus, if you want to receive this good news of the gospel. And I turned to my dad and I'm weeping. I'm like, dad, do you want to do this? And, and it's like, yeah, I think, think we're going to do this today, right? And my dad turns on the other side of him to his dad, my grandpa Wayne. And on that day, I'm pretty sure that's when my grandpa Wayne steps into the kingdom as well. And it's like three generations of Gaskills in the family and one fell swoop. God's like, I am going to do a work here. And that was the beginning of God's grace dawning, right? on the Gasco family. Praise God for that. And so when I uh, thought of a sermon illustration that we were going to start off with this morning, I had to tell that story because I want y'all to hear about my grandpa Vincent. Okay. Uh, my grandpa Vincent was uh, the postmaster in Arlington, Iowa, okay? The United States Postal Service, right? Sets up a dude to be in charge of the post, post office. And it was my grandpa Vincent for many years. And uh, he was the postmaster in Arlington, Iowa. And he was sent by the postmaster general to distribute mail to this small town in Iowa. Vocationally, like his purpose, right? Came from and was derived from the one who sent him to Arlington, Iowa. When my great grandpa was on the job at the post office or he was making deliveries, right? He represented the postmaster general and the United States Postal Service to the people of Arlington. Just as he was sent, he sent others, probably, probably only a couple part-time employees, right? Because it's Podunk, Iowa, it's Arlington. But when he, just as he was sent, he sent others to distribute the mail to each and every mailbox in the town of Arlington. And just as he had derived his purpose from the one who sent him, he gave vocational purpose to those that he was sending. You see, as the postmaster in the small town of Arlington, Iowa, my great-grandpa Vincent was a sent and sending man. 
You see, that's important because in today's text, we're going to see that God the Father sent Jesus Christ to earth with a clear purpose. And the resurrected Jesus appeared to his followers and said, as the Father sent me, even so I send you. You see, this morning, I think God wants each and every one of us to hear that because God is a sent and sending God, we must be a sent and sending people. If I was to tag today's sermon, I would title it, We Are Sent Ones. This morning, we're going to see that the triune God is a sent and sending God, that being sent ones and senders takes sacrifice, and that being sent ones and senders is all about Jesus. Will you all pray with me? God, we uh, don't hear that story and, and want to be thinking about uh, my great-grandpa Vincent this morning, but God, we hear that story, and I want us, each and every one of us, to think about you, Jesus, how you are a sent and sending God, and because of that, we uh, reflect your image as a sent and sending people. God, would you help us to understand more this morning how the gospel motivates us towards these identities of being sent ones and senders. And God, I pray that your, your gospel would dawn on someone's heart here today in the way that it did for me and my grandpa and my dad uh, in St. Paul at a Promise Keepers Conference. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Sacred City, I don't know if y'all are used to this, but I got some lessons for us this morning. This is how we're going to start off. Lesson number one this morning uh, is that the triune God is a sent and sending God. Check out John 20, 21 and 22 that was read graciously for me. It says, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. You see, each member of the Godhead here, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit has a part in this. God has clearly revealed in the Bible, he's revealed himself as a sent and sending God. Look at the text, as the Father sent me, right? The Father in this scenario is a sender and uh, his son Jesus is a sent one. He says, as the Father sent me, he goes on to say, even so, I am sending you. In this case, Jesus, the speaker, is the sender, and his disciples then are the sent ones. If we were to do a tour through the gospel and do a word study on sent or came, like why Jesus came, his purpose in coming or his purpose in being sent, you would see that all of the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit play a role in sending and being sent ones. Just like my great-grandpa Vincent, Jesus was both a sent one and a sender. And as a result, as his people, those who have had our lives transformed by the power of the gospel, who, are, who find our identity in Jesus, we who have been created in the image of God, uh, and now even more so those of us who have been recreated in Christ Jesus through the gospel, are called to reflect God's image as sent ones and senders. Sometimes it's easiest for us to put ourselves in the position of the disciples, right? Because the disciples, we think they're more like us. And so uh, we think, okay, yeah, it's, it's easy for us to think about ourselves in this identity as sent ones. They, they were locked up in this room. Uh, they didn't know what was going to happen. Jesus had just died. And Jesus comes on the scene and he gives them this commission. It's easy for us to step into this idea that we are sent ones. But I also want us to consider this morning what it looks like for us to reflect 
reflect God's image as senders, not just sent ones, but also senders. I'll tell you about a moment for me when my life was kind of rocked and, and I, I had this new vision for what I wanted it to look like for me uh, to be a part of being a sender. Well, there was this uh, moment uh, that many of y'all are probably familiar with, and uh, it hit me on Instagram, actually. Uh, Justin Dean is, is a friend of mine. You know, Justin was a part of our uh, assessment through Acts 29. And uh, Justin, you know, uh, I mean, this month, right? I don't know if y'all follow him, but you've been following him on his bike all month, right? In Colorado, right? Because he's got some sweet tech on his bike, and so you can watch every ride that he takes, and, and he posts it on Instagram. Well, back in the day, there was this moment where Justin posted this post, and I remember it was probably on this stage, I remember seeing this giant publisher's clearinghouse check. Y'all remember that? Any, any of you were here when that happened, right? There was this giant check. I remember seeing this on Instagram, and this is literally the first time in my life that I ever saved anything on Instagram. I was like, I got to be able to come back and see this one. I don't want to have to dial through all of Justin's posts in order to see this. This struck me because this was one of the clearest pictures of sending that I had ever seen in my life. You see, what some of y'all got to be a part of here uh, was that Justin and like Sacred City, right? Got to be a part of like giving this giant check, 138,000 and change, right? To, to Sam and, and the people that were going with Sam in order to plant Sacred City Moline. I remember seeing Justin's post on Instagram and how hype I was that day because I didn't just want to plant one church called Harvest City in Iowa City, Iowa, but I wanted to someday like stand at Harvest City. I wanted to be able to give away a publisher's clearinghouse size check to a team of people who would then go and take on this new purpose of planting a church wherever it would be that God had called them. You see, I got excited that day because y'all walked in obedience and being sent ones and senders. I don't even know that how much sacrifice it took. Y'all y'all didn't have to give, y'all didn't have to pray. The people in Moline didn't have to go, but many of you have consistently done that to the glory of God because in Christ we are sent ones and senders. And so having this picture stirring in my heart, I, I just thought, okay, well, let's take some time. And for some of you, it's just reflecting back because you've been doing this for a while. But, but go with me. Let's just look in the text. Let's look in, in the gospel of John first and foremost. What's it actually look like? For what reason did the Father send Jesus in this uh, sending? As the Father sent me, so I send you. Why? Uh, for what reason did the Father do this? Well, probably one of the most common verses in all of Scripture uh, that people are familiar with. John chapter 3 verses 16 and 17 it says for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life for God did not send his son here it is God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but he did send his son in order that the world might be saved through him so if we're thinking about being sent ones and senders, if this is an identity that we take on uh, through our relationship with Jesus Christ, he didn't send us up in here to condemn people, right? To beat people down with the Bible, to make them to feel like they don't deserve anything. But it says he did send him 
there's, there's love. For God so loved the world. The love was a part of the motivation. And he did send him in order that the world might be saved through him. You know, God has sent us then in, to reflect his image as senders and sent ones with this motivation of love to be a part of God's saving and redeeming work in the world. Another question I think we should be asking when we think about being sent ones and senders, not just what reason did the Father send Jesus, but how did the Father send Jesus? Well, John chapter 6, uh, verse 38, and Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Think about my, my grandpa Vincent for a second, okay? And how the postmaster general sent him to Arlington. He could have done things in the post office however he wanted to. But he didn't come to do it the way that he wanted to do it. He came to do it in a, as a representative of the United States Postal Service and a representative of the Postmaster General. Jesus, in the same way, has come not to do his own will, but to do the will of him who sent him. Another text where it talks about Jesus being uh, sent, John 10.10 10, says, The thief comes not only, or only to steal and kill and destroy, but Jesus, I came. This is why he was sent. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So one of the things that his father wanted for, for people here on earth, when Jesus came, motivated by love, motivated uh, by redemption and bringing saving into our world, was that people would experience abundant life in Jesus. What I didn't tell you in my story about my freshman year in college was that I didn't think that that abundant life could be found in the church. I was convinced for most of my life that I had to find that on a baseball field. Uh, my freshman year, I tried to find it in a bar. Uh, my freshman year, I tried to find it with females. I tried to find it in a lot of different places. But what I discovered after this promise keepers, when I started reading the gospel of John with some dudes on campus at the University of Northern Iowa, was that this abundant life could be found in Jesus. And that was like given flesh by a sent and sending people, by people around me who lived life in a way that I was like, actually, I might want to live life that way. They didn't leave, live a dreary, downtrodden, like I can't do this, I'm restricted by things uh, and rules, life. They actually lived a life that I might have wanted to live. Another text that talks about this sending work in John is John chapter 17, verse 18. It says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. This is like on repeat, right? And he, we already said this in John chapter uh, 20 as we're talking about the resurrected Jesus. So as we think about this, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. This is what Jesus prayed for us in John 17. John 17 is like the high priestly prayer. And Jesus is praying this over not only his disciples, but he also says those that would come to faith through them. Literally, Jesus prays for each and every one of us who would put our hope and our trust in Christ. And he prays over us that, that we would have this same purpose that he has as he was sent into the world, that we would be sent into the world in the same way. We're only going to step outside of the gospel of John uh, for two verses here, but these two I think are pretty key in thinking about why Jesus was sent. One of them is Luke 19.10. It says, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. And the other one is Mark 10, 45. It says, for the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
These are two things that I saw fleshed out when I saw that Instagram post and, and that giant check and, and the work of planning a new church. Things that I knew had to happen underneath on the surface in day-to-day life in order for that to happen were people that were concerned with the lost, people that came to seek and to save the lost, and also people that didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give their life as a ransom for many. So a part of Jesus' purpose in being sent into the world to live out this identity as sent ones and senders, part of it is this idea that we're here to seek and to save the lost. Like seek, by definition, means to search for and find something. I don't know about y'all, but a lot of times uh, the lie that I see people around me believing is that this is the hardest game of hide and seek that you will ever play, right? They're like, they're like well, uh, I'm, I'm kind of comfortable here in the church with my people, the people that are like me, that believe the same things as me. But if you're telling me I have to seek, they're like, man, like uh, those people must be way better than my kids are at hide and seek because uh, I just can't find any of them. And when I, when I do seem to go try and find them, they don't seem to be in the places where I'm looking, but the truth is like seeking, right? Like that's not the hard part, right? Like if we're thinking about being sent ones here in in the Quad Cities, right? Like these are people that you work with. These are people that your kids uh, go to school and you, you see the parents when you pick them up, you know, like these are people that are around you in the store and uh, in the library seeking is not the hard part. The hard part is then building authentic relationships with them. The way that Jesus sat down at table with them, the way that Jesus was willing to be called a glutton and a drunkard because he partook in meals with people who were gluttons and drunkards. You see, I think a big part of being a sent one and living out this uh, purpose of coming to seek and to save the lost is to get into those places with people, build authentic relationships with those people, and let those relationships be a bridge for them to naturally be able to see and hear the gospel lived out in our everyday lives. We've been sent to seek and save the lost, but we've also been sent uh, to serve, not to be served but to serve and to give our lives. You see, Jesus illustrates this in the gospels when he talks about going the second mile. Y'all, y'all know that like in uh, Matthew, when Jesus talks about uh, if, you know, somebody asks you to uh, carry their, um, their like not luggage, but their uh, like a sentry asks you to t- carry his shield and his armor for a mile. Like Jesus says, actually go the second mile, take it the second mile. Well, that's because by law, they were required to carry it the first mile. So in the second mile, that's when you actually began serving someone. In the second mile, that's when you actually took them in a place where it seemed sacrificial because everybody had to go the first mile for them. In our service, we, we can't be outdone by, by other people who would just normally do that. Our service, our sacrificial service needs to be that that exceeds what normally would be done so that we get an opportunity than to speak of how Jesus has served us, of what Jesus has done for us. The only reason that we're able to go the second mile is because of what God in Christ has already done for us on the cross and through resurrection, resurrection that the spirit of God is actually what carries us along and empowers us for that kind of service. 
See, lesson number two this morning, Sacred City, is that being sent ones and senders takes sacrifice. There's another uh, verse in John that I think I kind of put that Instagram post into like words for me. It's this, John 12, 24 and 25 says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But when it dies, it bears much fruit. You see, I knew in seeing that post that there was sacrificial service. There was sacrificial death that had to happen. Not just Jesus' death a couple thousand years ago, but literally people here in the Quad Cities that had to sacrificially lay down their preferences and their desires in order for the fruit of this new church, Sacred City Moline, to come about. I knew that that had to have happened because Jesus tells us in the gospels that this is how fruit is born. You see, God has called each and every one of us in Christ to be sent ones and senders, but there are reasons why we don't just walk in this, why it's not easy for us. And I think the reason why most of us struggle to reflect the image of God as a sent and sending people is because like the disciples, Our fear keeps us from seeing our situation the way God sees our situation. Check back in on this text with me. Look at the disciples in John chapter 20, verse 19. It says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week. Okay, this is is Sunday, all right? The first Easter Sunday. The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Think about the disciples here with me, okay? Uh, It was Sunday. Jesus had been crucified on Friday. All the disciples, except for Thomas, for some reason he's not in the room, are locked up in the same room, and we know exactly why they're there with the doors locked, okay? Here's how we know. Because the dude that wrote John's gospel literally is in the room with them, right? So like uh, when he says, like, we're in here for fear of the Jews. Like we are scared of what is going to be happening to us. We saw our leader be crucified. We saw him get the death penalty for what he was saying. And we were followers of him. So like we're in here for fear of the Jews because we don't know what they're going to do to us. Well, that's an author's note. Like literally he's telling us this is how he felt and he could see it and feel it. You know how fear it is like you can see it in people. When someone's scared to step into something, when someone is like petrified with fear, you can literally see it and feel it in those around you. That's what the author is telling us is the case. These men are locked up in this room because of fear. And so that got me thinking, How, like the disciples, does our fear keep us from being ascending people and being sent ones? Well, I think our fear can keep us from being ascending people uh, because when we send people, right, when y'all sent off people to Moline, there was people that you weren't going to see as much day to day and week to week. Well, we experienced that in our uh, equipping and training season uh, in, in this way. We, we went from one core team of about 45 or 50 people, and that's what we called Harvest City at the time, right? Uh, we were meeting in, in one of our friends' basement on Sunday mornings, and we're kicking it that way. And on one of those Sunday mornings, it was time for us to go from one core team that met on Sunday mornings and in Sunday nights at the Gaskill home, and it was getting crowded, and we'd have meals together, okay? Like, when we went from that to three That process meant, uh, especially for the gas skills, it meant us opening up our hands, dying to ourselves, not going with our preferences and letting some of our best friends in the world 
walk out of a scenario where we would see them every Sunday night in our home, in our missional family. And for us, that meant Mike and Sherry Benning, okay? It meant Mike and Sherry were gonna start meeting in a group that met on the east side of town and we weren't gonna see them week to week as much anymore. And they live like as far in Iowa City, as far as humanly possible in a car as you could get from in the city limits from our house to their house. And so having to come together for what we call our missional families, what y'all call MCs, was like, it was like just great. We got to see our best friends every Sunday night. They were coming to our home. But fear in that place, fear, if we were petrified by fear, we would have held on to them. We'd been like, no, y'all should just stay in our group. It'll be cute. It'll be fun. And it'll be here. But if we would have done that, we would have never experienced the fruit of Mike literally uh, praying for months, like four to six months for these houses on their street that like were empty and somebody was going to move into them. And most of their street was like filled with people that were like, you know, like a generation up from them. They were like the first of the younger generation that moved into these homes. And so... And in that home, literally six months later, uh, a family moves in that, uh, like, that loves Jesus, had been a part of a multi-ethnic church in Tennessee, and we're trying to plan a multi-ethnic church. So these people have experience, right? And like, they have kids. Their kids are literally, Mike and Sherry's kids' names are Grace and uh, um, Gabriel. And this family's uh, kids' names are like Gabriel and... Andy Grace, like their kids' names are the same and their kids are like the same age. And like God literally gifted this family to kind of step in that I think, I really think if socially there hadn't been that kind of space in Mike and Sherry's lives, like I don't know if Mike had been praying as hard. I don't know if they would have been getting after it as sent ones in their neighborhood as much. And some of these new families that have stepped in to Harvest City may not have been there if it would have been that fear kept us from being senders. You see, fear keeps us from seeing the truth of gaining by losing. There's this book by J.D. Greer that if y'all haven't uh, seen it, it's really great in terms of background thinking about church planning. And he uses John 12, 24 and 25, and then he illustrates throughout the book this principle of gaining by losing that actually uh, in, in kingdom language, when we think about the economics of God's kingdom, there's a lot of times that we have to sacrifice and that we, we feel on the front end, it might feel like losing, but there's huge gains in the kingdom of God. Our fear keeps us from being able to see that clearly. But our fear also keeps us from living as sent ones. You see, the fear that the disciples were feeling locked up in that room, we experience day to day a lot of times in terms of fear of man, don't we? Think about how often in our day-to-day life, think about even myself this morning in stepping in, I was talking about this with the people when we were praying with the team back here, how my heart, like it feels different to preach here for some reason preparing this week uh, than it did to preach in at Harvest City because here, I was tempted to try and dance for you and perform for you. You see, the people at Harvest City, I know them. They know that I'm, uh, there's nothing special about Scott Gaskill. He's your everyday average sinner that's been saved by grace, you know? Like, but here, y'all don't know me. And so there's a temptation. Fear of man makes me want to dance and perform a little bit. Don't y'all feel that day to day at work? Don't y'all feel that day to day uh, wherever you go? You see, fear can put us in a performance-based mindset rather than receiving God's grace and knowing that living as sent ones is not primarily about our doing, but about our being. 
We are sent ones in Christ Jesus because he has performed on our behalf because of the work that Jesus has done, because he has already been sent and he has died and he has risen. We can be sent into our workplace. We can be sent into our neighborhood and we don't have to dance for those people anymore. We can just represent Jesus in the things that we're doing. You see, Jesus has done this on our behalf. That's why we can tell that uh, being sent once in senders takes sacrifice. Because in that moment on the first Easter Sunday, Jesus looked at his disciples and said, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Jesus, the sent one, as our substitute, overcame fear in our place by enduring the cross and rising again for the forgiveness of our sins. Literally, the resurrected Jesus appears in this room of these fearful men and speaks this truth over them. Because of what he had just done, they could be empowered and walk in it. Charles Dickens uh, wrote this book called A Tale of Two Cities. It's set during the French Revolution, kind of like Les Mis. Anybody familiar with this book? It's a good one. Two of the central characters are Charles Darnay, a French aristocrat, uh, aristocrat, not a cat, French aristocrat. And uh, he's probably a pretty cool cat too, but uh, he's an aristocrat. And Sidney Cartone, an English lawyer. As it happens, uh, they look strikingly similar. They both love the same woman. Her name's Lucy Manette, but it's Darnay who wins her over. And toward the end of the book, Darnay goes to France. Not a great move for a French aristocrat. Uh, aristocrat, man, I keep doing it. Uh, aristocrat during the French Revolution. Not a good move for him, right? Uh, it ends up not working out. And sure enough, he ends up in prison facing the guillotine. So the cool thing is the night before Darnay is executed, Cartone goes with a helper to prison to visit him. He shows his papers at the gate and says, Sidney Cartone, Englishman. And he's let in. And once in his cell, Cartone gives Darnay a drink that contains a sedative. He then changes clothes and papers with Darnay. The helper carries out the sleeping Darnay to the carriage, then goes to the gate and announces, Sidney Cartone, Englishman. And he's led out to the freedom. Meanwhile, the real Cartone is back in the cell, and the next day, he's led out and executed. You see, this is exactly what Jesus has done for us. We've spent most of our lives living with the doors locked around us in our safe, comfortable scenarios. But Jesus, instead of doing what he would want to do, Jesus' great sacrifice, he, he doesn't just come in, you know, and swoop in and save us, right? Like we might not have even wanted to be saved. You wonder why is there a sedative? Why did the guy have to like literally uh, put the guy to sleep that he was trying to save? Because maybe he wouldn't have even allowed that to happen. Some of us have been fighting, kicking and screaming. I know I was before Jesus came into my life. But Jesus comes in. And instead of allowing us to keep trying to be the main role and protagonist in our story, he becomes the hero of our story. 
Because of the way that we've been living our lives, we should be guilty and face death and God's judgment. But Jesus, the one who represented his father perfectly here on earth, was punished on our behalf so that we might go free. And not only that, but when he gave us the gift of our freedom, he gave us a brand new identity as sent ones and senders. It's as if we could look in our wallets and instead of having an identity that said, you know, who, uh, Phil Young, Fleet Feet, right? Like whatever his business card says. Phil's in Colorado too. Uh, maybe him and Justin are hanging out, but uh, some of y'all know him. Instead of saying Phil Young, Fleet Feet, it would be like it said Phil Young, sent and sender in the name of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus has done this in our place. This is what uh, unlocks a newfound strength and freedom for us to be sent ones and senders. I don't think that Jesus was just uh, using a standard first century greeting to them when twice Jesus said, peace be with you to his disciples in that room when they're all scared. See, the first time he says, peace be with you. And then he shows them his hands and his feet. And it says that their fear went to gladness, that they went from fearing, feeling fear to gladness. Jesus literally showed them his hands and his feet. It's like he preached the gospel into their lives. And for one time, they experienced the comfort of the gospel. But then the second time, Jesus doesn't just say, uh, peace be with you and show him his hands and his feet. The second time, Jesus says, peace be with you. And it says, literally, as he spoke these words, as the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. Then it says that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit came into them. He breathed the Spirit over them. So that now, not just one time would the gospel be the comfort that their hearts needed in order to be sent ones, but now literally the comforter sent from God, the gift of God's grace would come and live in us so that time and time again, all of us would know that when we go out to be sent ones, when we take on this identity of senders, we are empowered by the comforter. The gospel is the very, take, takes residence in us by the power of the spirit for us to live out these new identities given to us in Christ. So last thing, as we wrap up this morning, lesson number three is this, being sent ones and senders is all about Jesus. Okay, so I've used illustrations to try and, you know, pull like uh, quad cities in so far today. Okay, but y'all are going to have to go to Iowa City with me for this one. All right. Any of y'all ever walked up like Johnson Street and, and been looking at the old Capitol building in Iowa City uh, in the evening and seen it lit up? Anybody seen that place lit up? Okay, it's, it's, it's also really beautiful. If you come up on the backside, if you come up between EPB and uh, uh, Hubbard Park and you get to see it from the backside. But uh, the thing that makes the old Capitol building in Iowa City beautiful in the evenings is it has these floodlights that are aimed at the like gold cap of the Capitol that like just make it shining and beautiful. It is the most lit, literally, it's the most lit thing in all of Iowa City downtown in the evenings. Well, y'all know that like floodlights aren't there for us to notice the floodlights. When floodlighting is done well, the floodlights are so placed that you don't see them. You're not, in fact, supposed to see where the light's coming from. What you're meant to see is just the building on which the floodlights are trained. The intended effect is to make it visible when otherwise it would not be seen for the darkness and to maximize its dignity by throwing all its details into relief so that you see it properly. You see, this perfectly illustrates the Spirit's new covenant role. He is, so to speak, the hidden floodlight shining on the Savior. 
Or think of it this way. It, it's as if the spirit stands behind us, throwing his light over our shoulder, not on us, on Jesus who stands facing us. The spirit's message is never look at me, listen to me, come to me, get to know me. But it's always look at him. See his glory. Listen to him and hear his word. Go to him and have abundant life. Get to know him and taste his gift of joy and peace. You see, as we think about being sent ones and senders in everyday life with the spirit of God living in us, we are like floodlights. It's not about us. Nobody uh, cares to see us. They care to see the one that we shed light on. That's how we glorify God as sent ones and senders. So I want to think about this individually and corporately in application as we finish up here. What about living as a floodlight, uh, as a sent one in our individual lives? Well, uh, this text mentions uh, forgiveness, and it's too much to get into verse 23. But think about the times when we have opportunities to forgive others. I mean, it's my everyday life. We live in a broken world, right? You can expect that somebody's going to step on your toes. Somebody's going to sin against you. When you have an opportunity to forgive someone and genuinely speak those words, I forgive you. What does it look like to do that as a floodlight? Well, I, I think we have to, in those opportunities, then speak of how much we've been forgiven by Jesus. We can't just say, oh man, it's no big deal. I forgive you. No, no, no. Now, true forgiveness as a floodlight in our individual life, living as sent ones, looks like I forgive you. You know why I can forgive you, bro? Because I have done way worse than you have done to me just now. And I've done that to a holy God. And there's this dude, and he's a hero, and his name is Jesus, and he has forgiven me of all of my debt. And that puts me in a place where I can now come and forgive you. You see, living as sent ones looks like using our words to point the light back to Jesus in our everyday life. Forgiveness doesn't seem like a big thing, but, can, but it can be a big thing in representing Jesus in our day-to-day -day lives. And what about as senders? Well, in the same way, when you empower someone else to live as a sent one through your discipleship or through your giving, all these different ways that we send others out, we need to make sure that we remind them that God has been generous to us in Christ. And that's the only reason that we are able to be generous and sending them out on his mission. When we give generously, when we uh, give a ton of our time to people and disciple them and, and we pour out our lives generously, they need to know through our words that it's not because uh, we're so great, but it's because God has been so generous to us that we reflect his image as a generous God. And lastly, what about corporately? Corporately as a church, as we think about living out this identity as sent ones, what does it look like for us to be floodlights? Well, I think we need to make sure that our MCs are actually on mission, right? If you're, if you're not in a missional family or a missional, we call them missional families. So y'all call them missional communities. Uh, y'all just need to get in one, okay? Like I have not even been to an MC in Sacred City. Nobody asked me to say this, but y'all, if you haven't checked one out, you need to send a text to that dude. I don't remember what his name was, but you need to send a text to that dude and you need to check out one of these MCs because this is the place where you're gonna get to see the gospel lived out. People are going to put flesh on the gospel for you in this community. But they call them MCs, I'm guessing, because they want to live on mission together. 
So if we want to live this out corporately, it starts there in our biblical community. We need to make sure that our missional communities are actually living on mission. That's where we're going to learn to live as sent ones. It's also where we'll band together to find a team of people who can be with us on this mission. So we're not doing it alone because we weren't created to live as sent ones alone. We are created to live that out with other people. And lastly, corporately thinking about living out this identity as senders. Man, I just want to encourage y'all the way that Paul would when he'd say, hey, you're already doing this, but keep on doing it. Keep on planning churches. Keep on being generous to churches like Harvest City. Keep on being sacrificial in your generosity. I know that like uh, 10% of every Acts 29 church's budget is set aside. You can't use it in order to like build up things here. You can't use it in order to like make disciples here in like the Quad Cities. It's set aside and used for for church planning around the world, right, and locally. Y'all keep on living out this identity as senders who are reflecting the image of ascending God by planting churches. Man, like when when I stepped onto the scene with Acts 29 and and I got to know Justin and and we started talking, I started talking to dudes here. Uh, For me, the thing that made me want to be a part of an Acts 29 church and part of the Acts 29 network was when I looked, I mean, I grew up in it kind of in Christ, but I remember looking at this map on the Acts 29 website and like, you know, zooming in, it like zooms in and out, it has this really cool feature. And I just bring up Iowa front and center because I'm an Iowa boy through and through, born and raised, okay? Literally was born in Iowa City at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. But I pull up that map, go to the state of Iowa, and it's like sacred city. Like at the time, that was the only dot on the map, okay? It was just y'all. Like in the state of Iowa, there was a season where it was just y'all. And now there's River City in Dubuque, and now there's Harvest City in Iowa. But I want to see that map lit up. Okay, I get excited about seeing the state of Iowa lit up with Acts 29 churches who are planning churches who live to be sent and sending people. And so y'all are doing that. Y'all are on the front end of that. I'm stepping in late in the game, but this is me pumping y'all up to say, keep on doing what you have already been doing. So as we conclude today, I probably already went too long, right? But remember that being sent ones and senders is not easy. We know that being sent ones and senders takes sacrifice, but we also know that the one who has sacrificed his life is our substitute so that through faith in Jesus, we could receive the gift of the Holy Spirit to comfort us and to empower us to keep on living as his sent ones and his senders to his glory. Will y'all pray with me? God, thank you for your word that encourages us that when we think about the work of mission, when we think about these identities of of being sent ones and senders, that it is not about our doing, but it's about the work that has already been done, that, that Father, you sent your son to leave heaven, to come to earth, to live a perfect life, to die a substitutionary death in our place, and to rise from the grave that the good news is that the work has been done and that we live to represent you and to shed light on your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen.